Welcome to your weekly update on all things tax. The Tax Factor from Blick Rothenberg. With Rob Goodley and Matt Crawford. Hi everyone, I'm Rob Goodley and welcome to The Tax Factor, the weekly podcast from Blick Rothenberg. Each week, our team looks at the news and updates in the world of tax and provides analysis of what it might mean for you, or your business. We've sent Nimesh and Heather off to a Tibetan retreat to relax before the upcoming autumn statement. So this week, the podcast is presented by me and my fellow partner of Blick Rothenberg, Matt Crawford. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Let's start this week, Matt, by talking about HMRC's latest attempt to keep the postman busy before the Christmas rush by sending a new one-to-many letter. What's that all about? Yeah, so HMRC have been sending these one-to-many letters for some time now. This particular latest one is around residents, but there have also been ones sent to people who have got various offshore income and gains in foreign bank accounts in the past. And we've also seen them as well sent to businesses on matters such as IR35 and the off-payroll working rules. So essentially what HMRC are trying to do is get people to self-invest, not just to self-assess, but to self-investigate their tax affairs and come forward and proactively report any issues. It's something that they've been doing for a considerable period of time now, and and I expect it to continue. One of the real challenges with it, however, is that when people do come forward with an issue and confess to an issue with HMRC, often HMRC, because they've sent one of these one-to-many letters, will say that it's a prompted disclosure with the obvious penalty implications that uh, stems from that. Yes, interesting. But I think the, probably the message is if you get one of these letters, there's probably some data or intelligence behind it from HMRC. So one to take seriously and not just chuck in the bin because they do look quite generic, some of these letters. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, certainly the, they often are sent to people where the common reporting standard information has been used to get gather information on things like foreign bank accounts. So when you get one of those letters, there probably is some kind of reason behind it, even if it looks potentially quite benign. Absolutely. Turning to a slightly different topic, there was an interesting Court of Appeal case which caught my attention this week, which I think could have quite wide-reaching implications. Before we get into the detail of the case, it's worth noting that HMRC have now lost this one three times, and there's only, I say only, around £2 million of tax at stake. Now, obviously, to the person in the street, £2 million is a lot of money, but to HMRC, in terms of their tax take and the cost and resources of fighting this one, it's actually not a huge sum. And the reason they're fighting it so hard in that context is because it relates to a point of principle that they feel quite strongly about. Um, It concerns what we call main purpose anti-avoidance tests. So these are targeted anti-avoidance rules. This wording is littered all over the tax legislation, which effectively says, if you're doing this with a main purpose of tax avoidance, then it it doesn't work and the tax is owed. So to the case itself, the taxpayer here was a business called Euromoney. Euromoney was invested in a joint venture, JV, alongside a business called DealLogic. There were two companies in the JV, but we can focus on just one of them here, which was Capital Data, because that was the larger one of the two and was the subject of the planning that the courts were looking at. In September 2014, Euromoney agreed to sell its share in the JV. So they agreed an in-principle deal with the buyer that the deal price would be $80 million, $20 million would be paid in cash, and $60 million would be paid in ordinary shares of the buyer, which would give Euromoney about a 15% ownership stake in the buyer. What happened then, which is typical in my experience of transactions like this, is the in-principle deal gets presented to tax and legal specialists on both sides and they run their eye over it. Tax expert on the Euromoney side looked at the deal and and spotted a problem. Whilst the the ordinary shares the buyer was going to give in consideration would attract a specific relief, share for share relief, the cash was going to be taxable immediately to corporation tax. The reason for that is that the sale wouldn't qualify for a specific exemption, which is called the Substantial Shareholdings Exemption, or SSE. 
In short, for SSE to apply, you need to have a right to at least 10% of the dividends that are payable by the entity you're selling. In this case, the JB arrangements were just, just written such that actually your money didn't have any dividend entitlement. So a little bit of an anomaly, they didn't qualify for that exemption. But the tax expert on Euromoney spotted an opportunity there, which was basically if they could talk to the buyer and substitute the cash for a class of redeemable preference shares in the buyer, they could get share for share relief on those redeemable preference shares as well as the ordinary shares and pay no tax immediately. But then here comes the real magic. If they then redeem those preference shares more than one year later, that redemption itself is then tax exempt by virtue of the application of SSE. So what Euromoney achieve here is, yes, their cash comes one year later, but it's tax-free rather than taxed. So Euromoney then did the right thing and applied for a pre-transaction clearance from HMRC. So they effectively went to HMRC and said, look, this is the deal we're doing. We're getting some redeemable preference shares, some ordinary shares. Can you agree that there should be no tax to pay because share for share relief will apply to that transaction? HMRC said, no, we don't believe so because there is a main purpose anti-avoidance rule here. And we believe the main purpose of you including these preference shares is to avoid corporation tax. And it was absolutely true that they were looking to uh, avoid corporation tax there. Euromoney acknowledged HMRC's response, but they went ahead with the transaction with the redeemable preference shares anyway. They then filed their tax returns on the basis that relief applied and HMRC, of course, challenged and it's gone through the courts. What's really interesting about it is that yeah, HMRC have lost on three counts now. They've only got one more level of court to go through if they want to appeal again. And effectively, what the courts have said here is you can't just look at one element of this transaction being the preference shares and say, OK, our main purpose of that part of the transaction is an avoidance of tax. So relief doesn't apply. The courts say the legislation's written quite clearly that you have to look at the overall deal. So the court said, yes, absolutely, the purpose of that step is to avoid corporation tax. But if you look at the overall deal, that is not a main purpose of what's going on here. And actually, there was good evidence to suggest that Euromoney would have gone ahead with the transaction, even if the buyer had said, you know what, we're not going to help you here. We're just going to pay you upfront cash. It's an interesting one for HMRC because it's, it's certainly not the outcome they want. I think it will have broader implications around how the tax legislation is interpreted elsewhere. So it'll be interesting to see what next steps are. Matt, as a dispute specialist, where do you think HMRC might go with this? If I was a betting man, Rob, I'd say that HMRC probably won't actually appeal this up to the Supreme Court. I think what they're probably more likely to do, I mean, this is a court of appeal judgment. So it is, it is, of course, binding on HMRC and other courts. But what I actually anticipate their tactics to be here would be simply to try and differentiate this case from other cases on basis of specific facts. So what we've got now is there was a case a very long time ago back in the kind of mid 2000s called Snell, which was won by HMRC on exactly this, this same test where there really was only kind of one purpose. And now we've got a different sort of test being applied, where it's a much wider set of facts and circumstances and there was only one element of the, the series of transactions that was deemed to be with an avoidance purpose. So we've kind of got the two lines in the sand now and I expect the revenue really to focus far more on the factual differentiation. This isn't going to be a time for taxpayers to sit back and say, oh, well, fantastic. This is great news. We're going to be able to get our, all of our appeals that might be sitting before the tribunal or all of our various assessments to tax cancelled as a result of this. I think the revenue are going to double down on the fact Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to see, I guess, what will come in the future. And um, I think if they obviously the revenue see this is too much of a thorn in their side, I think there is always a chance they might have a look at changing the legislation. But we will have to see. 
Moving on, we can't ignore the fact we're now heading towards the middle of November. It's soon be the start of silly season. And I'm not referring to Christmas. I am, of course, referring to politicians and the upcoming autumn statement. So I guess just a quick reminder of timings. We've got the Liz Trust Growth Commission setting out their alternative budget around this time next week. And then the week after that, we've got the autumn statement. So I think on recent podcasts, there's been some discussion around some of the things that may or may not be said in those two announcements. And there's been a, a little bit more on the rumor mill this week. So we can't help but talk about that, surely. Firstly, Matt, I, I guess I thought when I first heard about the Growth Commission and their announcement a week before the autumn statement, I thought perhaps that was going to really wrong foot the government because they surely can't react in time to reflect anything in that statement in the autumn statement. But I don't know on reflection, I wonder whether really the government care. It feels like, you know, they're going to stick to their probably steady as she goes approach. We're hearing it could be Jeremy Hunt's last statement. So if he sticks with the approach he's taken so far, they could bring in a new chancellor maybe for the budget in March and new approach, some tax cuts, maybe reflect a few of the more sensible things in the Growth Commission announcements in that. What do you think? I think that's probably right. I would imagine what most of the growth budget stuff is going to be underpinned by is this concept of kind of dynamic modelling of the tax system versus the static modelling, which is really just a new name for an old concept of looking at the behavioural concepts or downstream behavioural issues that are associated with changes to tax policy, as well as just the headline kind of revenue raising and uh, impacts on the public purse. So I'd imagine what most of them are going to be kind of pretty much benchmarked on that. But I agree. I think there probably will be a little bit of red meat or blue meat, as it were, for backbenches in either this statement or something coming in the future. But I don't anticipate that the government are going to be overly concerned by what's put in the growth budget now. So if we park Liz Truss aside for one moment and we just look at the the rumour mill that's been circulating on the autumn statements, one of the things I've seen in the last couple of days, Matt, is that we might have a might have full expensing here to say here to stay. Sorry, what do you, what have you seen about that? Yeah, sure. So what they're talking about there is full expensing of capital that you expend in your business. At the moment, we have got full expensing, but with a a deadline that's set to expire in 2026. But that might be going ahead as something uh, for the future. It's without any kind of end date on it. I do think there is a bit of a question in an economy which is quite heavily balanced towards the service sector, how much of an impact that would actually have. But you can see that it does align to some of the things that Jeremy Hunt has talked about as strategic priorities for the economy. So things like life sciences, green industries, advanced manufacturing, etc. So I wouldn't be surprised to see it. And I think for those of you out there that are doing your ATT or CTA exams, it will at least save your save your wrists and your pen ink in calculating all of those really difficult computational capital allowance pools. So good news for those guys, I'm sure. I certainly won't miss those days, Matt. But yeah, it's interesting what you say, because I saw in an article at the weekend that the CBI said they think this could result in a permanent 21% increase in business investment and a 2% uplift in GDP by 2030. But like you, I, I don't know what science is behind that. It feels like in a service-based economy, that's going to be quite hard to achieve. And you wonder whether there are some other areas where the government could target that investment, but we, we will have to see. The other item I've seen seems to come up very frequently these days is that there will be something in the autumn statement about the triple lock. I'm told that we're currently looking at an 85 percent increase next April under the triple lock, which would be the second largest rise ever, with the largest rise being the one last April, 10.1%. The rumour is that the government will again try to tweak the calculation so that we have a lower rise, perhaps around 7.8%, that sort of level, which is the 
wage growth figure if you strip out uh, the one-off pay settlement for the NHS recently. Matt, it's hard to think what the, the future of the triple lock is going to be. Surely the government can't tweak the calculation every time and, and stick with the policy. I think they might have a good go at trying, Rob, to be honest. If, <laughs> if inflation stays as high as it is, I think they might not have any choice. The only other thing, I don't know if you saw, but the other thing I saw out there was everyone listening will remember with great fanfare the, the abolition of the lifetime allowance for pensions purposes. Apparently there's possibility that that might be delayed simply because it's an incredibly complicated thing to do from a kind of tax technical legislative perspective. So I've been speaking to some of my colleagues who, who work in the pensions field and not just in tax, but also in pension law, in regulatory law as well. There are hundreds, if not thousands of references in legislation to the lifetime allowance and things like the 25% tax-free lump sum that effectively pegged from a legislative perspective to the lifetime allowance. And so there are so many codependencies. It's something that's actually really, really difficult to implement. And it's simply giving the draftsman a really, a really difficult headache at the moment. So it'd be interesting to see what happens with that. I think it's a good example of government policy meeting kind of legislative reality, right? It doesn't always work as you might hope. I'm only going to briefly mention the, the other thing I've seen is maybe some, you know, temporary holidays or reforms to stamp duty land tax. But I think hopefully we're not going to see them because we've had enough of that. And my colleague, Sean Randall, who deals with stamp matters, will probably go mad if that happens. But we'll have to wait and see. So that's all for this week on The Tax Factor from Rob and myself. It's been great fun to be given the keys to the studio. Heather's going to be back next week and no doubt refreshed and ready for whatever Jeremy Hunt is going to do in the budget. And she'll be joined by a new voice to The Tax Factor, our colleague Alan Tam from our global mobility team. Before we go, just time to mention there is a new episode of our sister podcast, Brave Business, now available, hosted by journalist and broadcaster Declan Curry. This episode looks at the topic of overcoming barriers for black entrepreneurs. Joining Declan to discuss this issue and share their stories are guests Bola Youssef, founder of International Tax Search, and Kojo Marfo, founder of My Runway Group. If you've not heard of our Brave Business podcasts, please do give them a try. You can find Brave Business and all the previous episodes of The Tax Factor on the Blick Rothenberg website. We release a new episode every Friday on all major podcast platforms. You can also find all of our episodes on YouTube. Just search Blick Rothenberg. That's all for this week. From Rob and myself, goodbye and thanks for listening. That's all for this episode of The Tax Factor. Find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not try Brave Business, our podcast series for entrepreneurs. Find it wherever you get The Tax Factor or on the Blick Rothenberg website. The Tax Factor.